I am the editor-in-chief of The Pitch and your host, Brock Wilbur. How is everybody? Is everybody sleeping well out there? Um, sleep, very important. I'm not getting much of it. It's 2.30 a.m. and I'm recording this because why not? I'm awake. Uh, I've been having a fun, wacky time since we got this new gigantic dog. Uh, he uh, is a gigantic baby uh, and is very sad if he can't sleep in the bed. And so he's taken some of some of my space and sometimes um sometimes i'm sleeping in the guest bedroom just to give him a little more right now because he is a, a whiny whiny child and uh he seems he seems to need it so yeah i don't know it has given me a chance to really connect with my daughter cat uh who uh, for the first three or so years that we have lived together has not cared for me <laughs> has not uh, really wanted me around and suddenly in the last few months, she has started to really, really enjoy her time with me. And since we got the dog, uh, now she kind of clings to me uh, whenever she uh, feels like coming out from under a bed or whatever closet she's been hiding in. Last night, she, um, she's she been doing a thing where she'll, she'll sneak up as soon as the lights go out, uh, especially if the dog has gone into the crate, and she will burrow under my arm so that my arm is sort of around her and covering her it's very very cute uh and then she'll purr and she'll purr so hard you know she doesn't purr uh at all so she she purrs in this way that she starts to shake sometimes it's it, for some reason this is the most exciting thing that has ever happened to her it, it is like after after not noticing that i was here for four years suddenly it's like wow i i have a a, a giant loving father who wants to protect me from a scary animal. I love him so much. Uh, and so she will purr to the point that she almost <laughs> starts to hyperventilate and I have to calm her down a little bit and then she goes to sleep. And then I'm like, well, now I have this cat asleep basically in my face. Sure, why not? That's fine. Love to breathe in. Cat hair all night. It's good. Good and healthy. A good, nice, normal thing. Um, last night she woke up in the night after having hyperventilated herself to sleep, uh, realized that she was still uh, under my arm, got so excited about it that she threw up and then climbed over me and buried herself uh, under my other arm. Um, so, yeah, I love to wind up waking up to find, uh, you know, just an armpit full of uh, turkey gravy uh, that's been regurgitated from an eight pound hairball. Um, you know, that's love. That's truly love. I got to appreciate that level of affection. So, uh, I don't know, not sleeping right now because, uh, I, I either have to accept that kind of love again, or, uh, I can be awake talking to my friends here on the podcast, uh, which what a fun time. Uh, we are doing a membership drive at the pitch, uh, signing people up, uh, for, Sustaining membership stuff to keep keep this pup, pup, puppy puppy a going is is that a phrase is that a thing keeping keeping the puppy a going that's that's what we're doing now uh, if you'd like to support uh, the work that we're doing uh, please pop on by the website uh, sign up toss us a couple of bucks per month it it would uh, go a long way for us these days uh, would really help us keep uh, giving all the excellent coverage to you that we've been uh, putting together for. 
for the last 40 years here. Uh, and we would like to see it uh, extend into 41, perhaps 42, if we're not being greedy. Uh, we're also currently in the middle of voting for Best of KC. If you do not know the pitch, our big thing every year is to put together a gigantic mega issue that is the Best of Kansas City. Half of it is stuff that we write up ourselves that is just what we love about Kansas City, why we think it's the best city in the world right now, what what makes us just proud to be here. And the other half of it is you guys voting on your favorite everything. Uh, favorite hair salon, favorite public restroom, favorite Thai place. Uh, there's something like 500 categories. Uh, you don't obviously don't have to vote in all of them, but like if you have preferences, let them be known because they will go into your local paper of record and be there for a whole year. Uh, and it is obviously a huge deal for all the personalities and businesses and everyone else involved. We saw a guy uh, on on the highway today. Uh, I don't know what he's won, but his, his license plate is Best in KC, and he has giant... Uh, stickers in his windows for winning best of KC from the pitch uh, in two different years. And like, we can't see the side of the truck in this photo that was sent to us. So I don't know what the business is. So it just looks like a guy that's just like real happy to have won. I, I, wherever you are, sir, <laughs> maybe put your business name on the back of the truck as well. But uh, we, we just adore what you're repping and uh, trying to guess as to who you are or to what you've won has been just a lot of fun for us around the office today. Uh, so today we've got next music corner as usual. Uh, love that guy. Love that he uh, keeps turning in all this great stuff. He uh, picked up my record store day purchases for me this week because I couldn't go. And that was awfully kind of him. Uh, or maybe I could go and just didn't feel like waking up early. Either way, uh, he didn't ask questions and uh, and got me some Gorillaz B-side records uh, with some remixes from albums I liked a decade ago. So that's that's exciting. Uh, so we have next Music Corner, um, and we have just a hell of an interview coming up today. Uh, I, I don't even know really where to start with it. Uh, his name is Alex Thompson. He's a doctor. Uh, he lives here in Kansas City. He is a black gay veteran who lives here with his partner and their children. Uh, and, and he has a book out called I'll Go uh, where basically uh, he'd served in the Navy, he'd left the Navy, uh, he was in academia studying uh, medieval Islam, uh, and uh, and then the 9-11 happened, and uh, in, in the way that so many other people saw the towers fall, and then uh, were like, you know what, it's time for me to sign up for the military and go protect the country, his plan for it was to just fly directly to the Middle East and immediately embed himself in Muslim cultures, uh, especially with like very hardcore fundamentalists, and immediately try to start fixing it himself from that side. Uh, he, he winds up uh, being somebody that uh, was uh, a huge help to our, our men and women in uniform uh, in a whole bunch of different ways. And the stories of his experiences are just out of control. And then, uh, yeah, it, uh, it, it goes some places. Uh, it is, it is an incredible book. We have about a 20 minute chat uh, about it where I'm just uh, sort of in awe that I'm getting to talk to this guy because uh, good God, he's very cool. Uh, so you want to stick around for that. 
but first thing up, uh, we have a reading today uh, from one of the pieces in our last magazine. Uh, Mayor Quentin Lucas uh, wrote a piece for us uh, for our futures issue that just came out. We were asking people what we think the future of Kansas City could and should look like. And we went to the mayor to be like, hey, what do you think it should look like? Because, you know, he's the guy that's probably in charge of, of taking it in, in that direction. Uh, and his ideas uh, were that we need to do a lot of reform uh, around our corrections institutions, uh, that they should be moving away from being a punishment uh, back to being a correctional uh, at trying to actually correct behavior and, and get people back into the world and being uh, parts of society again. Uh, so our friend Jason from Stolen Dress Entertainment uh, is going to read that piece for you now. Correcting back to correctional. Moving from punishment to rehabilitation trickles down to save our community by Mayor Quentin Lucas. Editor's note. As we asked what the city looks like moving forward and how we fix some of the largest problems facing our community, we thought it prudent to ask the person most directly tasked with overcoming those pitfalls, Mayor Quentin Lucas. The pitch and our columnists have our own opinions on what should be done, but none of us sit in a position to discuss what could actually come to be in the years to come. In watching a city plagued by gun violence that will almost certainly set a new homicide record this year, as federal agents are being redirected to the city, we wanted to hear what the most informed individual in this situation had to say about what we're up against and where he intends to lead us. Alpha David? Alpha David? Alpha David? It took him a while to get it right. Not because he couldn't pronounce the word, but because he couldn't read it. When he finally got it, we were both proud. Affidavit. It's entirely possible that this man's inability to read played a significant role in a long series of misguided decisions that ultimately landed him in Auburn Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in New York. I met this student in my final months of law school in upstate New York. I taught him and his classmates a constitutional law course for two hours each week for a semester and I learned more from them than perhaps any other group of people I've been surrounded by in my life. Criminal Justice Reform In recent years, our country is rightfully engaged in serious discussions surrounding criminal justice reform and has slowly begun to ratchet back some of the damage caused by the war on drugs that existed throughout much of my childhood. As we work to implement reform at all levels of government, we must take seriously these two responsibilities. One, helping provide low-level offenders an opportunity to get back on their feet rather than throwing them in jail, and, two, reimagining what happens inside of jails and prisons for offenders who are already there. My philosophy on prison is simply this. You should go there if you murder someone, if you shoot at someone, if you stab someone. You should not go to jail if you failed to pay a parking ticket, were busted with a small amount of marijuana, or couldn't afford an alternative option like diversion. A lot of people who get caught up in the system spend the rest of their lives trying to climb out, with little luck. We need to move beyond sending people to prison because our legal systems allow small infractions or unpaid fines to compound upon each other to the point of incarceration. We're working in Kansas City on implementing real reform measures, creating an alternative means of accountability for violations that previously resulted in incarceration, and rejecting overly punitive measures that disproportionately harm poor Kansas Cityans. We'll continue to rectify today the policies that allow prison to turn into the end of a person's life so that in the future it may serve instead as a turning point. Providing Second Chances 
In what I hope becomes nationally transformative, I've introduced an ordinance to establish a Kansas City administrative tribunal that would oversee parking tickets and other nonviolent city ordinance violations similarly to how the Kansas City Municipal Court does. With this important distinction, incarceration would never be imposed in any part of the process payment or collections process. Instead, fines would be civil in nature, with unpaid fines and interest going to one's tax bill. Earlier this summer, the City Council overwhelmingly passed my proposal to remove marijuana violations from the Kansas City Code of Ordinances altogether, because the City should not be in the marijuana policing business. I've also created a marijuana pardon program and have issued my first pardon. And the Council also recently passed my ordinance compelling the Municipal Court to provide, at minimum, 20% of nonviolent indigent defendants the opportunity for diversion, helping ensure poor people aren't burdened by the legal system. Usually, people who can afford a lawyer can have them negotiate diversion, help them get good deals, and avoid some of the aggravating penalties that come from even small municipal ordinance violations, such as a parking ticket. But there are thousands of Kansas Cityans who don't have that opportunity. Now, more people who can't necessarily afford a lawyer must still be provided diversion opportunities in lieu of other, oftentimes more punitive or expensive, penalties. In a future Kansas City, the past doesn't unreasonably follow people into their future. No one will be in our county jail because they were arrested after having a warrant out for their arrest because they couldn't get off work to show up for their court date because they couldn't afford to pay a parking ticket 18 months back. Instead, they'll receive an opportunity to set up a payment plan or maybe serve an afternoon of community service if they can't pay the ticket. We will continue working toward a streamlined set of legal parameters that do not discriminate based on race or economic status. Nobody is above the law, but more equitable laws can be in our benefit to not only decriminalize poverty, but also allow law enforcement to focus more on violent, serious crimes. Correcting versus punishing. There are violent criminals and we need them off our streets. That's not the question before us today. Instead, we ought to ask our policymakers, myself included, especially as Jackson County moves toward building a new jail, how do we ensure jails and prisons are catalysts for correction instead of places of only punishment? Over the past several months as we've confronted COVID-19, many in our community have come to realize, perhaps for the first time, the psychological effect of isolation and how that loneliness can quickly spiral into depression or anxiety. But at least we, on the outside, have a release. We can talk to our friends or partners, go on walks, listen to our favorite songs, eat our favorite foods. We must approach our incarcerated brothers, sisters, and siblings with the understanding that it must be difficult to feel motivated to make better decisions in the current prison setting. A future Kansas City, following the lead of cities like San Francisco, will not charge exploitative rates for inmates to speak on the phone. The average cost in Missouri for a 15-minute in-state call from jail is $20.12. And since many individuals are being held pre-trial, these ridiculous phone rates can be disastrous for those who cannot afford to make calls to post bail, build their defense, or make childcare arrangements while awaiting trial. If the goal of incarceration is truly to correct and rehabilitate, then those incarcerated should be able to contact their families and receive legal counsel without companies and governments driving up the price to cut a profit. I think back to my affidavit student and how he likely lacked the resources necessary to get him caught up in school or to address any sort of reading disability. According to a Bureau of Justice Statistics special report, nearly 68% of inmates in state prisons did not receive a high school diploma and 66% reported having a learning disability. A future Kansas City will ensure all inmates are provided the opportunity to earn a GED or continue their education while in prison, with programs that provide employment opportunities for them after they get out. Included in that should be extra support for those with learning disabilities, 
mental health resources, and individualized guidance to plan for life after incarceration. For both victims and perpetrators, incarceration is often an inadequate tool for curbing violent crime. Many believe that a person who is released from incarceration often becomes a worse, not better member of society. This can lead to retribution, or a continuation down a life of crime, the only unobstructed path they can take. Our correction system must return to its original namesake, correcting. I still teach law classes, now at the University of Kansas. At the end of each semester, I tell my students, good luck to you. I have confidence in your future careers, and if I can ever be helpful, don't hesitate to reach out. At the end of each semester I taught in prisons, both in New York and in Kansas, I could only sign off with a simple, I wish you well. Even though they were also students just the same, capable of learning, problem solving, and hope, the current system of corrections we provide leaves me at a loss. When I leave these students, what systems of support, if any, are in place to carry the futures of these men? who will undoubtedly have many more difficult years ahead of them. I sincerely hope for a future in which some of those students may walk free, may get to know how it feels to be enamored by a book, be a grandfather, or may even get to use some of the lessons they learned in my class to help someone else. And now it is time, once again, for Nick's Music Corner. Hello, I'm Nick Spasic, music editor for The Pitch, here with this week's local music recommendation. Manhattan, Kansas's Ruskabank was a long-running area ska band founded back in the heat of the genre's third wave of the late 90s. Releasing two excellent albums, 1998's This Took Some Time, and I Don't Think You Hear Me Though, in 2000, through local label Noisome Records, the band played hundreds of shows and garnered a regional hit in their sing-along anthem, My Friends. Ruskabank never officially broke up, but their last shows were in April of 2008, and while folks had fingers crossed that there might be some sort of reunion at some point, the death of trombonist Dave Stud Studnicka a couple years ago probably put that concept to rest permanently. This was a band that managed to play the occasional show without certain members or with fill-in drummers, but it was really the sound of all eight members on stage absolutely cramming a room with musical talent, which made Ruskabank what it was. You can still find a list of all of the shows they played with a veritable who's who of 90s and early 2000s ska bands uh, at their website, ruskabank.com. That's R-U-S-K-A-B-A-N-K.com. Um, but that's that's pretty much the limit of everything. If you can track down either of these CDs, do yourself a favor and grab them. They're, they're, they're a bit hard to find, but well worth tracking down. And they are both on Spotify as well. While most of the band's output found its way onto various compilations over the years, including an excellent cover of Truck Stop Love's How I Spent My Summer Vacation, Ruskabank's In a Very Bad Place never got the studio treatment. There was a live version recorded for Loden and Lawrence 2002, but I think this version, from a performance at the Bottleneck in November of 2000, is superior. Given the current climate and everything going on, the lyrical content hits just as hard now as it did 20 years ago. And honestly, who doesn't need a danceable sing-along song about how horrible everything is at this point? Take a listen to In a Very Bad Place. Once again, thanks for putting up with us from Ruska Bank from Manhattan, Kansas.
And as promised, here is my interview with Alex Thompson uh, with his new book, I'll Go. Uh, here we go. Uh, Dr. Thompson, uh, thank you for joining us on Streetwise today. Uh, can you introduce yourself to the audience, please? Sure. Uh, my name is Alex Thompson. I guess my uh, claim to fame is I spent about a decade or so living, working, and studying with uh, fundamentalist Muslims in the Middle East. So when 9-11 happened, I got a wild hair, and I decided that I wanted to figure out and somehow fix U.S.-Middle Eastern relations. So um, I was living and working in Syria and Yemen, wound up working with people like Generals Petraeus and McChrystal, um, and then ultimately decided to, um, you know, spend a lot of time working in national security. So, you know, that's uh, what I, I spent a lot of my time writing the book about. So, yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and we are here to discuss uh, your, your book that's come out recently called I'll Go, uh, war, religion, and coming home from Cairo to Kansas City, uh, which is uh, just a hell of a read. Uh, can't recommend it highly enough because um, it turns out that you've lived something like 18 different lives uh, in the span of one lifetime, and you're still going. And uh, chapter by chapter, it's just like I would have to sort of like check the cover again and be like, are we still talking about the same person? Because like this is now a completely different set of things. So yeah, you um, I. Of my age group and and of when uh, the towers fell, everyone I went to high school with at the time was then like activated to sign up for the military and go try to fight. And your wild hair was such a a goddamn wild hair that you were like, actually, I'm going to go embed myself uh, with with fundamentalists and I am going to try to alter – U.S. foreign policy from within <laughs> other countries, which I just yeah. – was did was that the first idea you had, or did you like, try to explain that to people, and they were like, I don't think that that's the best plan right now? Yeah, you know, I think um, by that point, you know, I had already been in the military, so I was in the Navy for four years, and I was already in graduate school, and I was studying religion, but when the Twin Towers fell, I I was just so – shocked and confused and I didn't understand you know one of the things I write about in the book is how I kept going to myself in my head and thinking who would do this what kind of people would do this sort of thing and it wasn't uh, you know a rhetorical question it wasn't like a politicized question it was a genuine curiosity and I just had zero answer like I you know probably like most people I couldn't point it at the Middle East on a map I didn't have any idea what languages were spoken or anything about Islam and so it just ignited a fire, you know. And, yeah, of course, when every time I told people, um, you know, I'm going to go to the Middle East again or I'm going to go live with fundamentalists, they're like, you're crazy. What is 
know. The, but the Amazon was... reviews from your book seem to be there, there's a number that I can tell from people that know you, and all yeah. of the reviews seem to start with. So yeah, I didn't understand where the fuck you kept going. Like he would just disappear, <laughs> and we were like, "Is he working for the CIA? What's going on yeah. here?" And then you read the yeah. book, and like they're like, "Oh, all my questions are now answered." But like, this was a difficult friendship relationship to maintain for some yeah. time. Yeah, you know, I um, because I, you know, I was studying at the University of Chicago. I worked with you know people across the political spectrum. I with people who had different ideas about the world. I didn't talk a lot. You know, I would just sort of disappear, and I would lie. You know, I'd be like, oh, I'm just going to study Arabic at some school in Cairo, you know. I didn't tell people I was going to Iraq. I didn't tell lots of people that I was going to Afghanistan. Um, and it, it did make it hard for people who knew me. You know, I did a, a you know conversation with one of my friends, and it was the first time he really talked about how difficult it was to see me going back and forth. And – you know, thinking, well, I guess if he never returns, I'll never talk to him again, you know. So it wasn't easy for my friends either, that's for sure. So it, in addition to the fact that, like, you're you're saying, like, I, I couldn't point to some of these countries on the map, I didn't speak the languages. Like, you went from a, a position in grad school where you were studying just the religion to sort of having to take on a graduate level understanding of like eight or nine different other fields of study uh, <laughs> yeah. in, in multiple countries where like, and, and your, your identity is such a, a fascinating part of this because I, I have to imagine that being uh, a, a black gay United States veteran from Kansas city makes you unwelcome in certain places in the Midwest and in Africa. Like how did you even start the process of figuring out like where you could go or feeling safe or like introducing yourself to anyone? Yeah. You know, um, this is another thing, you know, people ask me like what motivated me to write the book. And part of it was when in 2014, when I finally said, fuck the Middle East, I'm not going back. I mean, you know, I'm sure I will at some point in time, but by 2014, you know, I'd been in the Middle East for 13 years off and on. Um, and what I didn't realize, you know, I, I left in 2014. I moved to Kansas City in 2015 to be with my partner. And I didn't realize that for over a decade, I essentially pushed off part of who I am. You know, when I was in the Middle East, um, I never lied about who I was. And, you know, I always told people I was an American. I always told people that I was Roman Catholic. You know, I tried to engage Muslims and especially fundamentalist Muslims um, on, a, on a level where we could have the conversation that I thought would help with U.S. policy. And so, you know, you ask the sort of like, how did I know where I could go and what I could do? I mean, most times I just said, fuck it. I'm going to go. I'm going to go to this place and do this thing. And and another thing that you mentioned here is it forced me to learn all sorts of things that I didn't intend to. You know, I think about my um, colleagues who I went to graduate school with, you know, and we studied this old sort of medieval style Arabic. And if you could read the Quran and sort of have conversations about um, old dusty religion texts, then, you know, you were good. You know, you pass your exams, you get your PhD and you go get a job. But you know, I had to learn how to speak the colloquial language in several different countries. I had to learn, like, there's differences in how people practice the religion and talk about religion in the places that you go. You know, I wound up teaching myself all sorts of things about math and statistics, just be able to 
um, talked to policymakers in the U.S. You know, I worked with congressmen and leading generals and academics, et cetera. And, and in order to tell the story, I had to learn new things. So, you know, in terms of my identity, I think I just sort of, whenever, wherever I was and whatever I needed to do, I sort of took on that challenge and lived it out. And again, it wasn't until sort of 2015 that I said, holy shit, you know, I've got to live my own life here somehow. <laughs> Wait, so, yeah, which I, I, I love this part of the book because, like, yes, you have um, – you have this mastery of of, of medieval Islam. Uh, when, yeah, you, yeah. when when you showed up and started uh, trying to communicate with people, speaking that way, yeah. would that be the equivalent of like, somebody showing up in America today and like speaking like George Washington British at people, like full of those quotes? Yeah. Like, they'd be like, "Sorry, are you a time traveler from hundreds right, of years ago? Why exactly. are you? That's not how our language really works." <laughs> yeah, I mean that's absolutely right. You know, and so. You know, the first time I went to the Middle East was I went to Cairo, um, and that was in 2003. And I hop off the plane, and, you know, I'm speaking in, like, dust and thou and wilt thou not, you know, <laughs> like trying to communicate um, with Egyptians who are barely literate or sort of commonly literate or not, you know, Chaucer or Shakespeare or, you know, something like that, not going to be able to read that. And so – in my head, I'm thinking to myself, oh, yeah, I'm going to the Middle East. I'm going to solve all these problems. I'm going to learn all this. And I don't realize that I have to actually get from the airport to the place where I'm supposed to study. And no one on that path speaks medieval Arabic like I did. And, again, it was just sort of a real, you know, immediate kick in the nuts like, oh, shit, you don't – like I didn't get the enormity of the task that I had taken on myself but I had to just quickly and fully, you know, those days, especially when I first went to Cairo, I spent 10, 12 hours a day studying medieval Arabic. And then the rest of my time out at restaurants, sitting on the streets and in the internet cafes at the soda shops on the corner, just talking to people, you know, or trying to talk, trying to communicate, watching how people interacted. And so in a lot of ways, I just didn't have time to, you know, really think about or assert or, um, you know, to move in my own space, my own identity, if you will. So there is, um, yeah, there's sort of this, uh, this through line that I feel like exists uh, through, through a lot of, of your stories in the book here, which is that uh, you find yourself in, again, just every possible situation <laughs> that, that could occur. <laughs> uh, but like, it seems like overwhelmingly, uh, there's there's sort of the this this theme that when you are dealing with something that is is larger in scale or involves a lot of moving pieces or in, involves like relationships between our country and another country that that a lot of these stories end in in just brutal abject failure with the loss of lives with all this with yeah. all this sadness and terror and then yeah. every time that you have a story that's about like you sort of one-on-one -on -one with somebody, it is this, it is almost always this story of like a victory of changing hearts and yeah. minds, like individually. Yeah. And it, it makes the, the story so fascinating because it's like, well, hey, if we had, how many, how many Dr. Thompsons do we need over there to fix <laughs> yeah, the right. Like if we have 200 of you and like certainly at this point yeah. in America, we need that to fix some hearts and minds here too. So I don't know. Yeah. Like, it was yeah I mean, yeah, one of the things that I really want to, you know, I read a lot of, you know, combat memoirs, 
and, you know, there's a strain where it's like I'm a big badass Navy SEAL and I killed Osama bin Laden, right? Like that's the, the one, and it doesn't have to be Osama bin Laden. You don't have to be a Navy SEAL. You can be a Ranger. Well, there's, there's also nine SEALs that wrote that same book. So all of, <laughs> all of them are a bigger badass than the last. So. Exactly, right? And I really wanted to steer clear of that. I wanted to stay away from the shoot 'em up type of memoir. Obviously, there are parts of my book where I, I, I write about that and experiences that I had. But one of the things that you will find, uh, that I found anyway, from people who've gone to combat is this question, it's a deep question that I don't know that many people get through is, did I actually make a difference? Right. Was the time that I spent there, you know, a lot of people talk about their lost youth or relationships that were broken, nightmares, stress, et cetera, that they lived their lives with, like, is it worth it? And so one of the things that I wanted to draw is this contrast, which um, I'm really happy that you brought out, is that it's important to think about on the macro scale, like, did I personally fix U.S.-Middle East relations like I had hoped I could? Absolutely not, you know. Um, but are, can I point to personal interactions and moments where lives were actually changed? Then the answer to that question is yes. Or no, is yes. I, there is change. Now, that has benefit for me, obviously. What it, what it matters to the, to the larger world is, is a discussion to have, but it's certainly something that it has allowed me to process. Um, you know, as you mentioned, there's a lot of death and destruction in my book and in my life, um, and one of the ways that I'm able to process that is to think about the changes that I did make and the impact that I have had, you know, again, not just um, on Arabs, but also on fellow Americans, you know, soldiers and Marines and people here in the U.S. who haven't had a chance to go there and being able to tell my story in a way that gives them um, an affinity or sensitivity or empathy to those who have been in those situations. I, I love that you, <laughs> that your, 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 your power forward to move into, into the Middle East and start this was a whole philosophy of, fuck off, fuck this, I'm just going to do this. And then in yes, 2014, yes. you have a similar fuck this in terms of yes. just like, I'm done here. What was, yes. what is the point that you ended on? What is the point that, like, do you, do you miss it? Do you think that you will go back? Is there something that, you, do you think that it is at a point like that it's just stalemated and that, that no change could happen right now? What, why are yeah. you, why do you feel this yeah. way? Or is it just personal for you to finally be who you are? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's two parts to it, you know, and you really started this off in a way that, you know, in the many conversations I've had about my life and about the book, um, you know, not lots of people have picked up on. Uh, and, and so the first way I'll answer it is around identity. And so I needed to stop and live out my, you know, my, you know, as you, as you saw in some of the things that my friends have written, you know, my relationships with friends, family, you know, I had single for God only knows how long, way too long. And it was time for me to build a different kind of life. I was an adventurer. I was on the edge. I was a bachelor sort of doing everything I wanted to do, be everywhere I wanted to be. But it was time for me to have another adventure, right? Which is to find a partner, you know, we've got two kids to 
live in the suburbs, which I struggle with every day. <laughs> um, I mean, have you, a nine to five you job, things, you know, some things. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. But, but living in the suburbs and having a nine to five uh, seems like a wild adventure compared to the yes. life that you have had to this yes. point. Like this is, this is the unknown for you. <laughs> this is the absolute, this, it, this is like learning one of the most difficult languages I've ever learned being in the most difficult environments, you know, the physical and, you know, human networks to me. I'm like, wait, why do people act this way? Why do you do that? Why don't you just, you know what I mean? And so there's a lot for me to learn and to experience. It's not all easy. Uh, you know, next time you can talk to my partner, <laughs> I'll tell you all about it. Um, I expect your so partner that, to tell me that you, you actually speak uh, medieval Olathe. Like that. That's how I prepared you were for the suburbs. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so that's one side of it, sort of um, the, the end of it, sort of the, the point of it all. But but the other side of it, you know, you asked about another thing that you sort of pushed on here is around the difference, right? And so the right. other thing that I talk about is I, it, it will not surprise you that I think. Um, the way that we continue to move and to build and fix U.S. Middle East relations is built on the model of what I did, right? Like, yeah, look at me, look what I did. I'm great, right? No, but um, but honestly, I think you know I'm not the only person to say this. It's it's a it's a model within academics and in anthropology. Um, but to build those relationships from the ground up and come, going into a country and spending hundreds of millions, billions, tens of billions of dollars has proven to not work. And whether the United States is capable of this or not is a different question. But the ability to build relationships and to uh, grow those into vibrant, stable communities, then build up networks of communities, which build up, you know, let's just say provinces, which build up states, which build up countries, rather than let's go replace the government and then and trickle down a whole bunch of money through the, the civilization. So that's sort of, uh, you know, the big aha or thing that I learned through my experiences. Uh, where can people get your book? Oh, yeah. So it's available on Amazon right now. Um, like you said, it's called I'll Go. Um, and they can find it there. My name's Alex Thompson. It's spelled a little bit weird. Alex, A-L-E-X-S. Um, and then I have a website. Um, it's called This Hero Life. ThisHeroLife.com. And you do uh, awesome. blog posts and podcast stuff up on there? Yep. There's tons of blog posts and some deleted scenes from the book and some podcasts with my friends who will tell you how crazy I was half the time. So um, tons of stuff there uh, to see. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed yes. the book. I cannot recommend, uh, if you're listening to this, uh, it, I, I, I cannot re- recommend it highly enough. It is uh it is it is one of those books you'll knock out in one sitting because it just keeps uh, going and uh, boy you have uh, again you've got 18 lives in this one book and I I can't <laughs> wait to hear about your 19th 20th and 21st. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much. It's been a great conversation. All right. Thank you so much. Talk right. to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. That was Streetwise from the Pitch from Kansas City. I am your host, Brock Wilbur. Thank you guys so much for listening in. Please check out thepitchkc.com for all the cool, fun, weird stuff that we are doing. Please, of course, show up there not only to uh, take part in the Best of KC 2020 voting, but also to maybe consider becoming a sustaining member. Uh, please, please, please. We would love the help on that. Uh, our show today was edited by Terrence Wiggins, who you should hire for your work. 
thank you so much to everybody for listening. Really appreciate you out there. Uh, sign up for the Streetwise newsletter if you'd like uh, a bonus uh, thing in your inbox from me every Saturday morning, uh, summing up some of our best stories from the week and uh, containing a little fun editorial letter from me that sometimes gets me called the Marxist. Uh, I don't know. Well, Marxist, you tell me. Actually, please stop telling me. I'm, I'm really tired. Of uh, this has been Streetwise. Uh, pitch in, and we'll make it through. Thank you.